0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's gonna be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression. With Jerry Baker. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. We're delighted you're listening to this podcast. If you like it, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please also be kind enough, if you would, to leave us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts and indeed anywhere else you may find us. At the Journal's editorial page, we believe passionately in free expression. And so each week on this podcast, we explore in depth and candor with the help of a leading commentator, a major issue of topical importance, historical significance, or just something that we find deeply fascinating. So this week, as fighting rages on in Ukraine, we're going to examine the role of China in the rapidly evolving world order inaugurated by Vladimir Putin's war. And I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast this week, Orville Schell one of our most prominent observers of and writers on China. He's the author of many books on modern China, and is currently the Arthur Ross Director of US-China Relations at the Asia Society. He joins me now. Orville Schell, thank you very much indeed for being here.
1: Pleasure to be with you.
0: Now, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine came just after he concluded, literally days after he'd concluded a comprehensive pact with Xi Jinping, China's leader. This alliance of autocracies would, its authors have said, have no limits. But since the invasion, China has steered a careful course, I think it's fair to say, expressing guarded support for Russia, certainly condemning the West sanctions against Moscow, but repeatedly expressing concern about the progress of the war and its wider implications. So, Orville Schell, how do you think Xi Jinping feels right now about what's going on in Ukraine?
1: Well, I think it's an incredibly uh, awkward time for him because, in effect, when they uh, made the joint de- declaration, he and Vladimir Putin, just before the Olympic Games, it was in effect a, a declaration of matrimony. And uh, I, I, we don't know exactly what Putin said to him. One can only imagine that he, he probably said, Don't worry, we won't do it during the Games. We've got it all figured out. Uh, it's not going to be anything that will overturn the apple cart. But in fact, uh, it turned out to be quite otherwise. And yet Xi Jinping is stuck now with his declaration that they are the best of friends, that the relationship has no limit. And so it's very hard to know how to backtrack from that. But having just noted the awkwardness of the declaration uh, during the, just before the Olympic Games and what happened afterwards, one has to say that there is a tremendous reservoir of solidarity between Russia and China, which really centers around their sense of being disesteemed, disrespected, marginalized, humiliated by the West that does not accept autocracy as a legitimate, much less a humanistic form of government.
0: You've described this recently as a a shared narrative of Leninist uh, sort of victimhood, I think. Can you take us back to that pact that the two of them signed? What do you think, what was Xi Jinping thinking in doing that? What was he hoping to achieve? What signal was he sending?
1: You know, China, ever since uh, 1949, has had a deep and abiding uh, concern for what it calls hostile foreign forces. And even during the heyday of reform in the 1980s, when it looked like history might be moving in a good direction, that was never completely vacated. And it arises out, I think, of the whole uh, Leninist narrative of exploitation, of 100 years of humiliation, of colonialization, imperialization, all of these words which presupposed that China was weak. And you remember back in the 20th century, the early part, it was considered the, um, you know, the Yajo Bingfu, the sick man of Asia. And so that narrative, which I think Lenin's whole idea of imperialism and ex- as an extension of capitalism that enabled the capitalist nations to sustain themselves by preying upon, exploiting, and occupying and colonializing developing nations was one that, that got deep into the bloodstream of China. And uh, even though we had th- this miraculous period of reform, it never completely sort of vacated the ideological sort of wellsprings of China. And now it's come back like a recessive gene. It's re-expressing itself with a vengeance. Because I think Xi Jinping, you have to remember he's never studied abroad never really been abroad for any length of time speaks no foreign language and in fact is a child of mao's revolution he did cut his teeth and was formed during the 60s and 70s and that's his that's his toolkit and he very much plays out of that book that playbook the leninist playbook of the democratic capitalist world being the exploiters of the Asian, African, and the third world.
0: Do you think this pact between the two countries was predicated on um, assumptions about the fundamental weakness of the West, the decline of the West? Was it a statement of Xi Jinping's confidence in the autocratic model that he's developed and that its ultimate superiority over the West?
1: Yes, I do think that there's an element of that, that until Trump, and particularly until some of the things that that happened towards the end of his administration, China didn't quite have the feeling of its superiority. It yearned to be able to have it. And in fact, it was somewhat, I think, wishful thinking. And I think that very much contributed to the idea that, all right, the moment has come. The worm is turning here. And they don't respect us. Uh, They don't particularly, uh, they probably want to overthrow our form of government. And then we got wolf warrior diplomacy, where China sort of recklessly went around the world, alienating one country after another. And, you know, it alienated countries which used to be considered in sort of the uh, non aligned bloc, like India, Australia. Canada. I mean, who alienates Canada and Sweden and Norway? And that was, I think, a kind of a overly bold, quite arrogant, and a real misreading because of wishful thinking to see China become great, to become a competing, a viably competing model with the West that always looked down on it.
0: And as he looks at the first month or a little more over a month of this war in Ukraine, again, it is early days. We know, relatively speaking, this could go on for a while. And. The progress of the war could change, but, but it seems to be almost universally agreed that this has not gone according to Vladimir Putin's expectations or, or hopes um, or, indeed, the, the strategy on which he based it. And, in fact, Russia's got itself into a what looks like a kind of a stalemate and a long slog. This must worry Xi Jinping. I mean, he must have presumably assumed, as as many people did, and certainly Vladimir Putin presumably did, that this would be over pretty quickly, it would be a demonstration of Russian arms and superiority, and that any of the damaging implications that might have come from Russia's invasion would be dealt with quite quickly. But this now seems to be, he now seems to have been dragged into a longer and wider conflict with the West than perhaps he was bargaining for.
1: I think that's correct. He is now stuck on the tar baby of Putin's Russia. And there's no sort of uh, decorous way for him to delaminate from that. Uh, because in fact, as the world divides and decouples because of other things that China has been doing, there is no other logical ally or partner for China of any consequence. I mean, there's North Korea, there's Iran, there's Myanmar, a few other places. But Russia is the only other big bloc who has anything to offer, namely gas and oil and some military technology. So yes, I think he is really chafing Uh, he can't pivot and get out of it because it would look tremendously uh, unconstant. And yet he understands that um, he's dependent on global markets. And we now have the experience of decoupling massively from Russia. And this is not just the United States, but Europe and much of the world. And it'll be a lot easier to decouple from China if that becomes required.
0: And given China's integration into the global economy in the last 30 years, presumably the last thing Xi Jinping wants is to find himself now shackled to essentially the Russians, the Russian economy. Now, we should be fair. Other countries, too, have not been necessarily as as hostile to Russia's actions um, as we in the West have. India, for example, very importantly, has been not exactly. exactly supportive, but has been sort of studiedly neutral. But even so, Xi Jinping could find himself, you know, an economy that has been built on this extraordinary integration into the global economy over the last 30 years, now could find himself uh, kind of cut off. If we do, if we are entering a kind of binary age of a new Cold War, does he really want to find himself economically tied to, you know, the, dare I say it, the kind of, you know, the, the gas station that is Russia, as opposed to North America, Western Europe, much of the rest of the world who may be turning into these opposing camps.
1: Yes, I think, you know, the threat of China now being cut off of the globalization, the great heyday of the sort of World Economic Forum, everybody wins kind of globalization is quite a threat. And it is actually also, in my view, an immense tragedy, because China's one dream uh, over the past century was to regain its standing in the world, to regain sufficient wealth and power to be looked up to. And what has happened? Instead, now it finds itself shackled to a third world tin pot dictator in Moscow, and the world dividing around it. its markets, being threatened uh, by a sort of a reinstated Cold War 2.0, so just at the time, you know, when, when China should be able to be enjoying this enormous success of its sort of uh, rejuvenation, Xi Jinping has dragged it down and threatened it. And you have to ask, why? And I think here is where policy inadequately explains things, uh, because there is, in fact, no national interest for China to do what it has been doing. It's in Xi Jinping's perceived interest not to look weak. But it is also tremendously undermining of this great success that unprecedented in history that China could otherwise be enjoying now.
0: So what does he do? I mean, the flip side of this situation he finds himself in, in the situation that Vladimir Putin increasing, that the quagmire that maybe Vladimir Putin may find himself in, is this presumably gives considerable leverage to Xi Jinping. I mean, Russia has really only China firmly on its side in this. And China, as you've said, is watching with alarm and concern about how this is going. It presumably has the ability, at least, or at least the potential to have enormous influence. How does it wield that influence? And how does it seek to Get itself out of this trap that it now seems that you describe, it it now seems to be find itself in. How does it exercise its leverage over over Russia?
1: Well, again, there's a tragic element to the uh, leverage it now finds itself as ha- having over Russia. It used to be, you know, back in the '50s and '60s when Mao Zedong had just come to power, they looked at Russia as their their dog, their big brother. And Mao said that they had to irrevocably lean to one side. And then Russia was clearly the superior and China was the inferior. And now that's being reversed. But even so, Xi Jinping may have a lot of leverage over Putin and Moscow, but that's not the whole game (laughs) in this world of globalized markets that China is dependent on. I mean, Russia is a minor piece of that puzzle. So the thing that's under threat now is China's ability to remain a really vigorous and dynamic player in in world markets. And so in one area after another, like microchips and various technologies, and one thing after another, rare earths, pharmaceuticals, polysilicon, uh, we find ourselves decoupling and the world is separating again, like oil and water. And that is not good for China because China does depend on its global markets to keep its economic growth rate up.
0: We've got to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll have more with Orville Schell on China, Russia, and the new world order. Stay with us. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? Welcome back. We're talking with Orville Shell, China expert, about what we can expect from Beijing in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The U.S. has warned China very clearly through high-level consultations not to support Russia materially. Uh, it's hinted, I think in fact, I think it's said directly, we don't know the exact terms, but it's said very directly that, that the U.S. Would, um, would would extend kind of sanctions, its sanctions regime to China if China were to supply arms or significant support to help Russia's war in Ukraine. Do you think that will be heated in Beijing or do you, think, do you think we're now too far down the track of this new Cold War for them to, to worry about that?
1: Well, I think so far we've found Beijing quite mindful of not stepping over these boundary lines and violating U.S. sanctions. But, you know, push is going to come to shove. And if things continue to grow more fraught, uh, ultimately, I think uh, Xi Jinping's going to have a real problem. And then uh, he's going to have to make some stark choices, which he's tried to avoid uh, in the near run. And uh, as I noted earlier, I think we would have been very reluctant two, three, four months ago to initiate the kind of sanctions against China that we see having been implemented against Russia. But now that we're accustomed to doing it and Europe has gone along with it, it's going to be a lot easier to do it to China if, in fact, the governments in the West view it as as the only only
0: remedy. Do you think Z is able somehow to influence uh, Vladimir Putin? Is there some pressure that he might put on Vladimir Putin to reach a deal? Is there some diplomatic or economic pressure that he can apply that could bring this to an end in a way that, uh, uh, well, that could that could terminate this war relatively soon?
1: Well, China. Certainly could exert pressure. China has really the best hand of cards to intervene to do something. But instead, we've gotten platitudes out of them about, you know, uh, they believe in peace and win win and et cetera, et cetera. And they're not willing to do anything more than to simply say they will send humanitarian aid and they possibly might serve as some sort of intermediary. But they're not going to criticize publicly what Russia has done. In fact, they steadfastly claim that it was the West that caused this by pushing NATO forward, uh, not Russia that caused it. So there's still an enormous gap. And I don't see Xi Jinping uh, being able to bridge that gap. And with, with each passing day, a pivot becomes more and more difficult, and less and less uh, in Xi Jinping's advantage. Because if he pivots late, he looks weak, and he's missed the opportunity to pivot in a way which might uh, express a kind of a leadership, and would let the whole world sigh with relief to say, ah, China is actually helping here, not just sort of being dragged along in the mud
0: by Putin's invasion." How is this playing in China, this this conflict and China's alliance with Russia? I mean, obviously, China increasingly is an authoritarian regime, which uh, not quite as extreme now as Russia, but certainly keeps pretty uh, close control over uh, over media and uh, the press and over communications. But presumably, I mean, it's, it's an enormous country. There are still channels for people to express themselves. Do you, do you get the impression that this alliance that uh, China has with Russia is widely supported?
1: Well, what's interesting uh, is that, of course, the media is very rigidly and strictly controlled in China. And now Putin has taken a leaf out of Xi Jinping's book, and he's done the same thing in Russia just in the last uh, month or so. Uh, The the few areas of the few independent media outlets have been shut down. Um, I think by and large, what we see is that in a country like China, Uh, the propaganda mechanism and the bubble atmosphere uh, is quite effective. So most people who are very nationalistic at this point, and they don't like the idea that the West looks down on China and that they're not uh, esteemed, not respected. So I think for many people, um, you know, they're not opposed to their government. But this is not true, of course, amongst educated people. Uh, amongst people living in, in in cities but it's very hard for us to plumb the depths of sentiment in china because you can't have surveys you there's no way to do it there's no media outlets to gauge so it's social media is just about the only way but even that is so rigidly controlled that it's very hard to get a good sounding
0: xi jinping obviously in the last in his 10 year almost 10 years in power has consolidated Power uh, to a remarkable level created a, uh, a kind of personalist rule, uh, an increasingly autocratic rule. Has turned away from um, perhaps the you know the gentle or at least the limited liberalising that there had been, you know, in the previous uh, decade or so. Certainly under previous rulers, he's obviously changed the constitution so to enable him to be able to serve another term uh, beginning next year. Does any of this? what's going on now uh, and the relationship with Russia and what's happening with this new Cold war that seems to be emerging, does any of that change his authority, his control, his the, the increasing personalization and the identification of China with his own personal rule? Does any of that change at all as a result of this or is that still very much on track?
1: I think the more uh, that China finds itself confronting, Uh, contentious issues like the invasion of the Ukraine, the more it has to crack down on the media, the more it has to censor and control. And so this amplifies uh, Xi Jinping's uh, uh, sort of obsession uh, with control. The problem with control is that at a certain point, then Xi Jinping owns everything. So anything that goes right, he gets credit for. But anything that goes wrong, he also gets credit for. So, this is a real problem that uh, he is going to confront. He is going to, in a sense, own a piece of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Uh, and this is a bitter pill for a country like China, which is always uh, droning on about respecting territorial boundaries and sovereignty and that people shouldn't interfere in other countries' internal affairs. Here you have a fellow traveler in country, Russia, just completely abrogating every one of those fundamental principles that China claims of the stars it steers by.
0: Is there any? Again, he's, this has become an increasingly auto, autocratic state, um, and he's eliminated opposition. We remember, very early on in his in his rule, um, there was some considerable uh, sort of political ferment, if you like. And the, the case of Borsjeli, who was seen to some extent as a power rival, who was obviously arrested and tried and convicted on corruption charges. Since then, there have been occasional rumours, stories that that maybe there are there is some dissent with within the top levels of the party or further down, but you hear less and less of that. I mean, it does seem as though, and obviously, you know, he's pursuing the repression of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, and he's essentially pulled Hong Kong completely into the Communist Party's rule, essentially, now. Is there any evidence at all, or even any suggestion at all, that his rule is anything other than absolutely secure?
1: Well, you know, that's, a, that's the most fundamental question of all, and I will only say this. In a totalitarian country where everything is controlled by the state and propaganda is the only uh, form of information that's allowed to freely travel, you never know what just is bubbling away beneath the surface. And when I first went to China in 1975, when Mao was still alive, the Cultural Revolution was going on, if you had said to me then that in a few years... Deng Xiaoping, who had been cashiered twice, would be back. Uh, the Gang of Four would have been arrested. Mao would have been in the doghouse, and we would have been off on some crypto capitalist reform uh, program. I would have thought you were mad as a hatter. Why? Because there was not one whit of evidence anywhere that anybody could see of those sort of incipient tendencies that then in 1978 and 79, when Deng Xiaoping came to power, bubbled back up. So I think that we have to sort of take a lesson from that and recognize that whatever we can see and can't see now does not tell the whole story. China has a funny way of submerging giant blocks of itself because it doesn't allow free discourse. And it can be very deceiving and and people who don't know the country well and uh, don't know Chinese history well can be easily deceived by what they see at any given moment.
0: Let's talk about Taiwan, obviously, which is an issue of pressing importance and potentially even larger significance than the war in Ukraine. Um, The thinking, I think, in the early days of the war in Ukraine was that in a lot of the certainly a lot of the Western thinking was, Putin had done this because he s- detected weakness on the part of the West, particularly the United States. He saw what happened in Afghanistan last year and the kind of shambolic withdrawal there. He'd heard all of the kind of repeated, repeated evidence from Biden and from the West more generally that the U.S. wasn't prepared to sacrifice American lives again for a far off country. And everybody sort of thought, well, actually, what does that tell us about China and Taiwan and Xi Jinping and Taiwan? It suggests it's kind of almost like a green light for him to do what Putin's done in Ukraine. But now that Putin has run into, first of all, tremendous obviously military difficulty in Ukraine, but also has elicited a response from the West, from the US and NATO. It's kind of like a sleeping giant maybe. It's finally woken up and got its act together. How do you think the events of the last month or so enter into Xi Jinping's calculations about what to do with Taiwan?
1: Uh, this throws a real rock into the middle of his plan. You know, there was a recent election in Korea and the new president of Korea has now announced he wants to join the Quad. So th- it's been a catalytic kind of circumstance, both what's happened in the Ukraine, but also, I think, the extremism of Xi Jinping's position on Taiwan. Now, they are having, have been having a debate on Taiwan about what sort of defense strategy to adopt. And now they're looking at, at the Ukraine, and they already had this notion of a porcupine strategy, where you would not have tanks and F-16s and heavy armaments as a form of uh, a protection against a, an invasion, but you would spread out. You would have many little militia sites with javelin missiles and stinger missiles and various other kinds of uh, very movable weaponry, which would make occupation extremely difficult. And that now is really gathering ahead of steam in Taiwan and must influence Xi Jinping's judgment about whether he can uh, use force to take Taiwan if he gets outraged by something that they do there. So I think the game is really changing rapidly here. And also I should say that America... Japan, Australia, a lot of other countries have now expressed a much greater willingness to come to the aid of Taiwan, to see Taiwan's interest as their interest. And this is another radical change that is very, very recent and must must be worrisome to Xi.
0: And he must have seen too the perhaps the surprising degree to which NATO countries have at least expressed so far, and in some cases actually demonstrated, a willingness to suffer economic sacrifice in order to isolate uh, Russia over Ukraine. Um, you know, Now, of course, the Europeans are still importing Russian natural gas, although they are clearly indicating their willingness to turn that off. They've cut off the um, Nord Stream 2 uh, line. They've imposed these swinging sanctions on Russia, which will hurt European countries and the United States too. And so with China so integrated into the world economy, perhaps the calculation might have been in, before this that, well, you know, if we would attack Taiwan, whether or not the US would militarily respond – Perhaps they wouldn't in the end ultimately be prepared to suffer the kind of economic consequences of isolating China. That calculus has probably changed somewhat too, hasn't it, in the last month as he sees that there is perhaps a surprising degree of willingness to accept a sacrifice on the part of the West?
1: Yes, I think precisely. And I think Xi Jinping, if he's looking in a realistic way at Europe, is in effect looking at a laboratory of experiment of what happens when you do execute a revanchist Policy as Putin did in the Ukraine and as she is tempted to do in Taiwan. It galvanizes people together in a way that they never would have come together otherwise. And uh, I mean, we don't know what kind of uh, information feedback loops uh, she has. Uh, Maybe people are reluctant to bring bad news to the leader. We understand that dynamic. But if he has any sort of objective capacity to discern what's happening, he will see that precisely the kind of actions Russia has taken and that he has taken are the ones that galvanize people outside to come together in a way that uh, makes it impossible uh, for him to to carry out his dreams of, of, by whatever means necessary, taking Taiwan.
0: Finally, Orville, how would you characterize this new World that we seem to have entered in the last month. Everybody, a lot of people, I should say, are talking about a a new Cold War, Cold War 2.0. We've talked a little bit about this, about the world being divided into two camps, uh, as it was for 45 years after the Second World War. uh, This time, perhaps with China as the senior partner and Russia as the junior partner on the other side. Do you think that is now the likely reality that we face? And if so, what are the implications of that? I mean, we went through 45 years of the Cold War. With a series of sort of minor hot wars, if you like, Korea, most of it, I shouldn't say minor, that was a significant war, as was Vietnam. But we managed to avoid the wider conflagration between the nuclear powers. Do you expect that pattern now to repeat itself, that we have this wider strategic conflict fought out perhaps in smaller conventional hot wars, and we're somehow also still able to avoid the wider... Sort of existential conflagration that a nuclear war would represent? Or or how do you see this playing out now over the next decade or so?
1: Well, I think if we can avoid uh, Russia using tactical nuclear weapons or making some sort of attack on a NATO country which would uh, trigger Article 5, we may end up thanking Putin in a very strange and sort of uh, cryptic way. Namely, that he has managed to galvanize the European community together as never before, and to to bring it together with American leadership. And I think the very same thing is underway in Asia, caused by Xi Jinping's wolf warrior diplomacy, his bullying of other countries, his posture towards Hong Kong, South China Sea, East China Sea, and Taiwan. And I think, um, you know, we we may find ourselves better able to protect ourselves because we will have had a consolidation of alliances than we would have otherwise. So this could end up, if it doesn't run the whole train off the tracks in the near run, it could end up in a kind of a Cold War situation, but one in which, as before, it's somewhat stable and that the alliances are, mo- are more fortified and more together and less in a state of contention than ever before.
0: And I suppose the flip side of that, if I may put it like that, that is that the flip side of, of what you've described is that the the hopes that we had 30 years ago at the end of the Cold War, that the world was moving somehow towards um, a kind of more universally agreed upon system of government, of liberal democracy, but also of peaceful coexistence between nations, We're going to have to probably bury that just as we buried the Cold War, are we?
1: Well, I think that teleology, that notion that history is heading in a good direction, a democratic direction, sort of the end of history, a la Francis Fukuyama, that has buried itself. Now, it may be reborn again in some manner that we can't imagine, but just as we thought history had ended, it started up again, and we now see the results of it. And we're off to another very contentious phase. Uh, Let's just hope that we can contain what's gone on in the Ukraine, that the Ukraine, in a sense, is the sacrificial lamb that will bring us and the liberal democratic world together. And that that will have some restraining effect both on Russia and China.
0: Orville Schell, author and commentator and writer on China, modern China and China's history. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thank you very much indeed for listening. And please do join us again next week for another deep exploration behind the issues driving our world. Thanks very much and goodbye.